0: You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. It's a wonderful privilege for us to be welcomed back here. Thank you so much for, for having me and my family over in this church. We're excited to join with you at the Lord's table and in the Lord's word today. Um, You can go ahead and turn to John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. As Tarek shared, uh, Dave Lomas asked me to share a vignette about Jesus Christ from a miracle that he accomplished in the Gospels. Dave Lomas and Tim Chaddick communicate sermon information to me entirely different from each other. Tim Chaddock, in reality, LA, called me, or he, he texted me, and his his method of preparation is to, uh, was to call me and say, well, here's a text, Lazo, and here's here are the three points that I want you to do, and here's three commentaries that are my favorite, and here's an extra commentary if you still have doubts, and I also have a person on staff with a PhD if you have any questions, and... Uh, here's the trajectory that I'd like you to go to if you want, but you can also go a little bit outside of that trajectory, be led by the Spirit, but stay you know, with my direction. Uh, if you have any questions, call me and uh, so on and so forth. When Dave asked me to, to share from the Word today, he text messaged me and he said, I need you to do a miracle. And I I sent him back, well, is there anything else? Like, I need some godly nuggets of wisdom. He said, that was it. Do a miracle. And so, um, as I've been preparing to to preach from the word of God on a miracle, this seems to be where the Holy Spirit led me. I chose his first miracle, one that is as fascinating as it is controversial, uh, the turning of water to wine. And it, it, it doesn't... It doesn't always make sense other than to dazzle people when they read it. Like, that's a fun trick, Jesus. (laughs) Unless we familiarize ourselves and put ourselves in in a first century setting with that wedding party, understanding what they understood, and especially put ourselves in a particular situation that is unfolding at this one, Uh, set ourselves into the drama of what's going on in Cana. And so that's what I want to do with you Um, if you're there. John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. I'll be reading out of the HCSB, but I believe it's, it's very similar to the NIV, which you guys are accustomed to. And this is, this is what John says. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What is this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. And when the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then after, people have drunk freely the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, in the middle of the city, among many other churches who are doing the same thing, we want to confess together the words of the psalmist. God, you are our God. We earnestly seek you. Our bodies yearn for you. Our souls thirst for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We have seen you in the sanctuary. We have beheld your power and your glory. And we want to come and crowd around you today, Lord, as a church gathered and say, your loving kindness is better than life. Our lips will praise you. We will bless you as long as we live. And now, Christ, as we open up your words, I pray that you would, by your grace, somehow use my foolishness and the way that I say things, that you would somehow use those things in spite of me, if you have to, to get across to the church of Jesus Christ, that Christ, you are who you said you were, you did the things that you said you would do, and you are right now here present among us to bless us with your glory. And so we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would manifest the fragrance of Jesus. You would put him on display. You would magnify him. You would exalt him. You would make him the only one that is spoken much of. That we would leave this little theater here, this school, this gathering, with a deeper longing for the Holy One of God. Quench our thirst today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I've seen a, a lot of strange things happen at weddings not, because of, not only because I've gone to them but um, as part of my job is to preside over the ceremony and so I've seen a lot of strange things I've seen a lot of tragic things the last wedding that I did was for a friend who um, unbeknownst to me during the ceremony decided to uh, act out his own vows by pulling out a bag of goodies uh, that he used it as illustrations for his vows. And they were vows, uh, things of this nature, like uh, to my bride, I vow to always give you a back massage at any point uh, that you ask me for one. Or uh, I will uh, cook for you a gourmet meal, you just snap your fingers. And he just began to throw out all of these vows that a lot of the the, the older men in the congregation were kind of getting nervous about. At one point, he started pulling out uh, uh, pieces of underclothing and waving them around. I don't even remember what the vow was for. (laughs) It was a heavy visual. I've seen really strange things happen at weddings. But the scene happening at the wedding in Cana is, is not strange. It is absolutely crazy. Weddings in the first century, especially among Jewish people in Palestine and Israel, were the central event for people of that day. Now, we, we, we put some importance on weddings. It's not like they're not important, but they were not as urgent. They were not as central in our lives today as they were in the first century. Central event for many people, they would have lasted much longer, they would have been much more involved than our weddings. After a ceremony in the first century, the couple would typically be taken straight to their home, no honeymoon, they'd be taken straight to their home on a parade, taking the the circuitous route around town so that they could meet every single people in the town. Meeting them all, shaking their hands, they would have been adorned with a crown, they would have had all of this uh, beautiful garb uh, being worn. Instead of the honeymoon, they would simply meet everybody around town and for a week they would just experience this crazy party where they would be treated like royalty. It was said that the bride and groom for the following week, their word would be the law of the land. And you have to understand that this was against the background of extreme poverty. For these two people, especially in Cana, these would have been very poor people. This would have been the one week in their entire life where they would have gotten a taste of something else where they would have gotten pulled up out of their impoverished status. They would have experienced joy. They would have experienced a celebration. They would have experienced happiness. They would have experienced food. They would have experienced love like no other. This was the break and the escape from everything that they have ever known in their poverty. It was a pleasant escape. And in the center, at the centerpiece of a wedding, wine was the symbol of a celebration. Meaning, once the wine was cut off, your celebration was over. Now, in a wedding in, the, uh, in, in, in our day, you might be a little annoyed if the wine runs out, uh, depending on the wedding. If it's a three-hour wedding and speeches are going on forever, you might be uh, slightly more irritated. But that's the extent of it. When the wine runs out here, it's, it's a nuisance, and that's perhaps... That's perhaps the last of it. When the wine ran out in the first century, it was devastating. The wedding was over. The dream was shattered. True story. (laughs) Let me give you an example just to, to drive this home. In a shame culture like that, the responsibility of providing hospitality was on the family of the groom, meaning if you failed to provide hospitality, and this had to do largely with the amount of wine that was there, if you ran out of wine, your family would be shamed for the rest of their life. If you ran out of wine, in fact, uh, one writer, one scholar puts it this way. He says, It was actually in the books in that day that a guest at your wedding could sue the groom if you ran out of the appropriate drinks. Think about that at your wedding. The next time you forget some party favor, you could get sued for that. Obviously, this wouldn't happen in our day, but this was a really big deal. It was more than a nuisance, it was heartbreaking. A bride's dream was about to be shattered. Her family was about to be socially stigmatized and her husband possibly sued for all the money that he was worth. When Mary came up to Jesus, broke all social norms, broke into his circle of boys and said, son, they're out of wine. He might as well have said, son, they're, they're out of joy. Jesus, perhaps some of you would, would say that this morning. Perhaps you've rolled into this church this morning because you have run out of joy and you have simply ran out of places to look for it. Jesus steps in on the scene and he turns water into 150 gallons of fine wine. 150 gallons would have been about 30 bottles of the best wine hands it over to the master of ceremonies who drinks it, and he says, you know, most people save the best wine. Uh, the, most people use the best wine, and when people get freely drunk, you know, then they, they bring in the cheap stuff, you know, the Charles Shaw from Trader Joe's or whatever. <laughs> you guys have no shame. You bring in your best until the very end. Now, for some of us, this is very romantic. It's very... Uh, it's very dazzling it's that story we like to laugh about but for others perhaps for skeptics i've had i've heard from skeptics and agnostics that look at this and it just angers them you know like really the the god of the universe can do anything that he wants he can snap his fingers and solve world hunger he can end cancer he can end war but he uses his miracle power to make good wine? He helps a party along? This seems so trivial. Even if this were a true story, some people would say, why in the world would John include that in a list of seven or eight miracles? It seems so trivial. What John, the gospel writer, would have us know this morning is that it was far from trivial. Jesus was making a Bold statement about himself. Perhaps more than any other miracle to follow. He was essentially saying three things. This is what I came to do. This is why I came to do it. And this is how you can receive it. It's what we're going to look at this morning. What he came to do. Why he came to do it. And how to receive it. Here's here's what I mean. What what he came to do. What do What do some of you think... Jesus came to do? This is an open-ended question that gets a a lot of open-ended answers depending on who you ask. Some people will say, well, Jesus came to forgive my sins. Others would say, no, Jesus came to make me a better person. Some would say, no, Jesus came to uh, alleviate suffering. Others would say, no, he came to uh, start a revolution. He came to upseat the, the powers that be. He came to start a movement. You know what the gospel writer Luke says about Jesus? He says in Luke chapter 7 verse 34, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. The Son of Man came to sit at the dinner table with people and share a meal. Think about that for a second. You want to know what Jesus came to do? We cannot spiritualize or ignore the immediacy of the story. He simply came, he met a felt need in a tangible, lavish way so that people could continue to celebrate. The Son of Man came eating and drinking and celebrating and enjoying life and practicing what that looked like in the midst of a community of people that gathered around him. That is a far cry from what some of us envision Jesus as being any of you remember the the famous Jesus film from I think it was the 1970's God bless it it has done many good things in culture and with people except for one thing this sense that a a lot of us have when we, we watch the film it captures what we sometimes think of Jesus as this this silent monk who just kind of wanders around with a glazed look in his eye just You know, just just not very fun, not very down to earth. He's that type of person that you're like, I know you're important, but I don't really want to hang out with you. Because if I did, I wouldn't know what to say. You're, You're way too holy. You're way too serious. You probably spend like all day praying and thinking about really righteous, holy things. Jesus was a far cry from that. He enjoyed people. He celebrated with people that nobody celebrated with. He invited people into his home. He was invited into other people's home. He ate food. He drank drinks. He laughed. He was sarcastic. He was witty. Think about this that we can get from this story. He was invited to parties. (laughs) (laughs) So this question I have to ask to every Christian in the room. How many parties do you get invited to? I'm serious. (laughs) Do you ever think the world looks at Christians and wonders why we're so uptight? I think we should be able to look at the story and think that perhaps Christians should be the ones having more fun than anyone else because Jesus knew how to celebrate. He was the one who got invited to parties, but it it goes even, even deeper than that. Why he came to celebrate, why he came to spread joy is simply because he's in a world full of people that have none. Oh, We think we're happy. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Everything John records in the gospel is significant about Jesus. There's nothing in here that's trivial, especially in, in the gospel of John. So the question we, we ask one another is, why would he include such a silly miracle, uh, a miracle a miracle in which he turns water into wine and everyone gets a kick out of it. Why would he include that in a gospel that records significant things about Jesus? I think we can pull out three clues from the text. The sign, the water, and the hour. Here's the first clue. The sign. In John, John never calls the miracles that Jesus does. I think he, does, uh, he records about seven or eight miracles. He never calls them miracles. He calls them signs. He calls them signs. In verse 11, Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee, and he displayed his glory. John gives us a little bit of a glimpse when he bookends this gospel in John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, when he says this, Jesus performed many other signs. He does several of them. In the presence of his disciples, which are not all recorded in this book, but these that are written are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name in other words i have jesus has done a lot of miracles and he's done a lot of signs but i've chosen seven or eight because they tell you something significant about who he is and what he came to do So signs according to John, different than any other book, different than Matthew, Mark, or Luke, the book of Acts, signs in the gospel of John function as parables. A sign is a miracle slash parable. It's something Jesus did in order to give you a glimpse, a vignette of who he is and what he came to do. So it's there to tell you why he is the Messiah, It's there that you might believe and know that Jesus is the Messiah. How can this miracle in which he turns water into wine show us that he is the one that the Old Testament has been cluing us into all of this time? The promised one of God that came to renew and to set free and to gather people to his name. How does this parlor trick tell us anything about that? Well, it's it's all in the water. Second clue. Look at verse 6. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. Water jars used to be placed there before a meal for uh, pious or uh, very religious Jews to wash their hands in before eating a meal. Uh, You might be tempted to look through the Old Testament to find where it's commanded to do that. It's not there. But certain sects of uh, Judaism would practice this. Mark tells us uh, a little bit of what that would look like in Mark chapter 7, verse 3 through 4. He says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. Holding to the traditions of the elders... When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups and washing of pitchers and washing of kettles. A lot of washing going on. This hand-washing ritual was not a part of the law that Moses gave us. That's why you can look through the entire Old Testament and not see anywhere where there's this very detailed washing. What it was is centuries later, Jews would begin to add to the law of God to make it a a little more accurate, uh, not accurate, but to make sure they were following it well. The Pharisees loved to do stuff like this, adding uh, sub-laws to the law of God. They would say, for example, they would say something like, oh, uh, not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but you know, what is the Sabbath? Oh, oh, and what is work? Is work tying a knot well, I, best, I guess I better not tie a knot. Okay, put that in there, in the ledger. No tying knots. They would begin to add on all of these intricate bylaws to the law of God to make sure that they didn't cross over it. It was often very meticulous. And they would do this, uh, uh, for example, ritual washing Uh, came out of a desire not to be unclean. But how are we unclean? Maybe I bumped into something. Maybe as I opened the door, I touched something that was unclean. I better not eat food if I'm unclean. And you never know when you're unclean. So let's wash our hands. But it was very detailed, very meticulous. And it just got carried away. In fact, the size of the vessel that you washed your hand in had to be a certain shape. It had to be a certain size. It had to be made out of a certain substance. That's why we're told that it was stoneware. And it just got even more meticulous as the years went on. We're told that there was a certain position that you had to wash your hands. You you had to ball your fingers together in a certain way and lift them at a certain angle so that the water, the unclean water, didn't drip down your your forearm. It, it, It was unbelievable. And at one point, Jesus confronts the silliness of all of this ritual. He actually says in one gospel, listen, it's not the stuff that's on your hands that defiles a person. It's this, it's that which comes out of your heart. You can wash you could take a bath all day long and you'll still be the same dirty people I've always known. You need a heart washing. The danger of rituals and by the way, rituals are not bad, right? We're here on a Sunday morning, you do this every week. That's a ritual. We sing songs, we have a certain liturgy, we go through the word of God, those are rituals. There's nothing bad about rituals, those are helpful. The danger is when we begin to pile on rituals because we we don't know what else to do. The danger is when we forget what those rituals are supposed to be pointing to. And when they no longer point to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, they now begin to point inward at our own ingenuity our own self-righteousness, our own ability to provide that which we have been lacking. When I begin to just start acting like a Christian, doing the right things, reading my Bible, praying every day, helping those who are poor, doing stuff that, you know, Christians do because it makes me feel better about myself, I have lost my way. It becomes white noise. I know all about white noise. I have a I have a nine-month-old daughter and a white noise machine. <laughs> and earlier on, this was our first kid, we, we were so lost. We had to figure, uh, some of you that have kids know, we had to figure all of this stuff out on our own. So I was YouTubing video tutorials on how to raise a baby my, my kid would just begin to cry, just bloody murder. I wouldn't know what to do. I've never held a baby before in my life. So I started Googling stuff and reading books and asking Brianna. and I got a litany of different advice, of, of advice from just all over the place. One was, you know, practice the shushing technique. Just shh, <laughs> And somehow shh, supposed to quiet your kid down. So I started to do that. But another book told me, no, you need a, you need a white noise machine. It, it's the soothing thing that emulates you know, what they felt when they were in the womb. And it's all poetic and stuff like that. So I got a white noise machine. And then another thing said, no, classical music, it, 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 not only does it quiet them down, but it, it makes them a genius when they grow older. So I got some <laughs> classical music, and no, you need to bounce your baby. So at certain points, this, this would work, you know. The, I would do these things, and they would work. At other points, Abigail would simply not have my techniques, There would be times where I would do everything that I could. I was shushing. I was bouncing. I was playing white noise. I was playing classical music. I was jumping up and down and she was screaming. And there was all, I feel so sorry for my neighbors because there was just this symphony of white noise just emanating from our our apartment building and it wasn't working. In fact, it was making her scream even louder. And I don't know if it was like an epiphany from God or maybe Brianna just kind of told me this. Uh, There's... uh, a blurry line between the two of those things <laughs> but at one point I was like this is ridiculous I turned everything off and I just held her as she cried and within seconds she just, her head just dropped on my chest and she, she grabbed my shirt and fell asleep on my chest and I was like wow that, that was it <laughs> that doesn't always work either by the way Sometimes the white noise, sometimes the rituals make everything worse because at the end of the day we look at all the stuff that we're doing because that's what Christians do. We get lost in the noise and we wonder why we started there to begin with. It all seems to make everything worse. The noise becomes overwhelming and Jesus will he'll burst in on the scene of your party. He'll knock on the door as the true master of ceremonies, as the true wedding planner not to add to your rituals, not to say do, you know, oh you're doing 10 awesome things from the bible now here's an 11th. Not to add to the burden but to replace the old system. I want you to walk out of this building recognizing that Jesus didn't add water to the pots, he changed the water into wine. He brought what people could not bring with their own ingenuity. He replaces the old system. And this is exactly what John told us before in the previous chapter, in John chapter 1 verse 17. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Clue number three. This is one of the funniest responses I've ever read in the Bible when Jesus reacts to his his mama, right? Right? I ever talked to my mom this way she would slap me so hard I just got to read it again because it's so funny but wine ran out uh, verse 3 Jesus mother told him they don't have any wine verse 4 what is this concern of yours to do with me woman Jesus asked <laughs> I think in the NIV it's a little more pronounced it's like woman what is this concern of yours to do with me uh, this response seems really harsh. Like we would never say that to a to a lady, you know. But actually, in the first century, uh, the, in the first century, woman was actually a very respectful term. It was a very respectful term for a man to to call someone that uh, in the in their language to say uh, woman to start off a sentence in that way. However, it is not as intimate as you should have spoken to your mom. It's not harsh, but it's not very family-oriented. It's almost as if Jesus is, is now starting to put a little distance between him and his mom. It's almost as if he's saying, uh, to some extent, Okay, listen, I know you're my mom, but I'm your God. Hey, I know, I know you gave birth to me, Mom, but I created you with the word of my power. I know you helped me until I was 12 years old, you know, to tie my shoes and feed me and all of that stuff, but I'm going to save you from your sins. He puts distance between himself and his mom, and then he answers her. But the feeling is very tense. You know, you know why it's so tense? Think about this. One, per, one person put it this way. What do you think about first when you go to a wedding? What do you think about when you're not married and you go to a wedding, uh, like of a friend or a, a stranger? You, you generally... You generally think about your own wedding. A lot of people, when they go to weddings, they're invited to weddings, they sit there in the seat, pretending, you know, maybe pretending to be happy, mulling over in their heads what their wedding should look like, or why their wedding has not come yet, or what it's going to look, or how they're going to pay the bills, or if they're engaged, like, or not engaged, like when is he going to pop the question, or all of these things that flood into our heads, we often go to weddings reminded about our own weddings. You know what Jesus was thinking about as he's sipping this wine and as he's uh, committing this miracle? He's thinking about his own wedding. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 through 8. Listen to this. This is a vision by John who wrote the same book we're reading. He said, Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters. And like the rumbling of loud thunder sing hallelujah. Because our Lord God the Almighty has begun to reign. Let us be glad, rejoice and give him glory. Because the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife, his bride, his church has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear bright and pure. See the testimony of the scriptures of the whole Bible is that there is going to be a wedding unlike any other where Jesus Christ is the groom and he brings his bride which is made up of all those who believe in his name and they will sit around the wedding feast of the lamb and they will celebrate. But why is it tense? Jesus is troubled because this wedding is paralleling the wedding that he knows is coming up quick the wedding feast of the Lamb, but he is thinking, okay, I can turn water into wine, but the cost of bringing a bunch of sinners to my wedding feast is going to cost a whole lot more than 30 bottles of Cabernet. He's thinking about his wedding. Distressed and disturbed and troubled. You know how we know? Because of his answer to Mary. What he says in verse 4, what is this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, Hey, Mom, I, the time isn't right yet. My time hasn't come. Like, I'll do this later. Believe me, I'm God. It's in the script. I'll do it in a little later. I just want to enjoy the wine, enjoy the fellowship. He doesn't say, My time has not yet come. He says, My hour has not yet come. What does that mean? Everywhere that you see the word hour in the Gospel of John, it always refers to a specific something about Jesus. It doesn't matter where it is. Whenever Jesus brings it up, in John chapter 7, verse 30, in John chapter 8, verse 20, in chapter 12, verse 23, in verse 27, in chapter 13, verse 1, in chapter 17, verse 1, hour always refers to the mission that Jesus was sent here for, which would climax in his death. When Jesus speaks about his hour, he is speaking about the fact that he has to die. So when he says to Mary, my hour is not yet here, he is saying he is thinking and troubled and distressed and heavy in heart because he knows the price of throwing his own wedding is going to cost him his life. When he will die on the cross for the sins of humanity... The dowry that would cost him to bring sinners who don't deserve it to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Clothed, as as John says in Revelation, with fine linen to wear, bright and pure. That's a costly, that's a costly wedding dowry. It would cost him his blood and it would cost him his life. No wonder Paul compares marriage to the death of Jesus Christ. Husbands, love your wives, Ephesians 5, just as Jesus loved the church and gave his life for her. That's why John says in verse 11 chapter 2 that in doing this seemingly trivial miracle at Cana he was displaying his glory. He was giving us a glimpse into what it would cost to bring joy to a world with no joy. To turn the water of our our emptiness into the wine of his everlasting joy. In other words... Jesus was making a statement about himself that he is, in fact, the good wine of joy. The Bible often uses sensory experiences to describe our salvation. You ever notice that? It uses strong language. Sometimes beyond the intellect, it, 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 it uses experiential language to try to get a point across of what salvation is and who God is because salvation is a deep experience. Jesus didn't come to just add a bunch of more trite rituals to your schedule. He wants you to know him. He wants you to be affected in the deepest possible way. Salvation is not a mere intellectual ascent where you find something agreeable in the same way that you find a mathematical formula to be true. Because at the end of the day, in a similar way, Brianna and I didn't come to San Francisco saying, yeah, we believe that the food in San Francisco is awesome because it says so on the sign of every door. No, we want to taste it. You don't believe that gravity exists because someone told you that the mathematical formula. You believe it exists because you fell down some stairs or because you're a professional skydiver and it thrills you. It's the same for salvation, which is why you have people like the psalmist declaring, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Job, I, I, I heard of you by the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes sees you. Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan from the 1700s, wrote a book, A Treatise Concerning Religious Affections, where he took issue with Christians who treated salvation, treated Jesus Christ as, that, uh, as merely an intellect, uh, intellectual assent. He took issue with Christians who were unaffected by what they hear. To quote him, he says, If the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect your heart. Meaning, not, not just your emotions is not what he's speaking about, but your will, your disposition, the, the way you make decisions in life. It will affect the heart. The reason why men are not affected by such infinitely great, important, glorious, wonderful things as they often hear and read of in the Word of God is undoubtedly because they are blind. If they were not blind, it would be impossible and utterly inconsistent with human nature that their hearts should be otherwise than strongly impressed and greatly moved by such things. Edwards was saying what we see in the Psalms, salvation means you're changed. In other words, Scripture uses descriptive language, experiential language, to tell us that Jesus is more than just about changing our behavior. He wants to invade our hearts. He wants to invade our will, our disposition. He wants to take over, and he wants to affect us. But how do you receive it? That's my last point. As the Feast of Tabernacles, and this is Later on in, in John chapter 7 is about to end. This is another week-long celebration. Jesus wisely waits until the end of the celebration. This is where the post-holiday blues are about to set in. People are coming down from that high of celebration. They've got to go back to the dreariness of their life, the emptiness of all that they experience. Jesus gets up on his soapbox at the end of that and he shouts at the top of his lungs. John chapter 7 verse 37 On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. (laughs) The one who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. You know what he's saying? He's saying that these things can't ultimately satisfy you. You people who go to Cana to look for something exciting to stir up your soul, you won't find it here. Those of you who moved to San Francisco, to Los Angeles, to Santa Barbara in hopes of finding that thing that will just do it for you, you won't find it here. But instead of chasing you out of the city to find something else, he meets you in the city to provide the good wine of his eternal joy. You came to the city to find what completes you, but I have come to you in the city that you might find your completion in me. C.S. Lewis described this he described this problem that we have in this way he said that we we have these physical desires we love a lot of stuff we we get these urges we have these passions and they are all uh, these energies that God gave us that are filtered through physical pleasures physical pleasures are the filtered version of what God placed in our hearts and he goes on to say and they are too much for our present management what would it be to taste at the, fountainhead, uh, at the fountainhead that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating and yet that I believe is what lies before every Christian. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. The truth of this miracle is that we were made for something more than what our physical pleasures know what to do with and that we can receive that deep experience of God's joy simply by believing. Listen, not by believing on, an intell- on a, a, a merely an agreeable level. Like, I believe that in the same way that I believe that E equals MC squared. But to believe, as the word of God says, the disciples saw his glory and believed in him. Who he said he was. uh, What he said he would do. And the family of believers that he grafted us into. That we would believe. That we would belong. That we would trust. And that we would devote our lives to this truth about who he is and what he has come to do. And he, in turn, provides the wine of his joy. Perhaps some of you are here this morning feeling like the wedding party at Cana. Saying, I did all of this work, I went through all of this trouble, I did all of this stuff, I've got my checklist, and still there's this emptiness, there's this, this, this vacuum, there's no joy. Perhaps you are surrounding yourself with noise to escape what really amounts to an inner poverty. And you will search for it all your life and find nothing until you turn to Jesus Christ. And even for the Christian, you don't turn to Jesus Christ once and then go back to doing the things that you used to do. Your life is marked by a constant turning. We call it repentance. Turning to the joy of the Lord in Christ Jesus. So if that's you, your response today would be simple. It would be in the words of St. Augustine. You have formed us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And you know what Jesus will say to every one of you that says that in their heart? He will say, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I have this to say to you. Do you need rest for your souls today? Christian and unchristian alike. You believe in Jesus. Jesus will not just offer rest for your souls. He will offer rest, and then He will come in as the true master of ceremonies, the true bridegroom of the wedding, the true wine to provide joy to those who have none, and that, as John would say, will be filled to the very brim. All that He leaves for you is to respond and drink deeply. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue today in worship for your holy name, we pray that you would send the promised Holy Spirit to make clear and tangible those things that we cannot make clear and tangible with our natural minds. You say that spiritual things cannot be understood by natural people, and so God, we pray that the Holy Spirit would come and make Clear and evident what you have done and are doing in this congregation in the city, for some of us, we come into this building with drama, with baggage, with hurt and pain and confusion, our own agendas, and I ask God that by your mercy, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would as Paul say. Shine a light into our hearts, revealing the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus. That here in this little cathedral, you would put the glory of Jesus Christ on display so vividly and so wonderfully that no matter what we came into this place clinging to, they would fall to the ground as we see a better love and as we see a better glory and as we are allured by a better joy. You are so faithful to do that each and every time. We fall at your feet today, Jesus, and ask that you would do a heart work in us and that you would overwhelm our hearts with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.